Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. This episode of Clear and Vivid with Isabel Allende is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Discovery. For more than 30 years, Discovery's global networks have been helping hundreds of millions of viewers understand their lives, their communities, and the world around them. From science and nature to food and lifestyle, and now the world's biggest sporting events and greatest names in travel and documentary films. The Discovery family proudly informs, entertains, and powers the passions that drive our planet. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. I think that the House of the Spirits was like an exercise in nostalgia, trying to recreate the world I had lost, to reunite those who were displaced, my family and friends, um, in a way to save my own memory because after some time, I was, I was beginning to forget, to forget people and places and, and stories, the, the wonderful stories that my grandfather would tell me. That's Isabel Allende. In 1982, using the literary style known as magical realism, her novel, The House of the Spirits, was a breakthrough for women writers in Latin America. In our conversation, we talk about her writing, her work to empower women, her passions, and her thoughts on flirting. Isabel, I'm so excited to talk to you. This is so great that we can talk this morning. Well, my honor, absolutely. No, mine. You, you said something once. 
that really interested me. Oh, please me. don't quote me because well, I'm going to quote you exactly. But, but it, was, it was something like, "What's truer than truth?" And I think you said story. So tell me about that. How is story truer than truth? Okay, let me give you an example. Um, sometimes when we look at the news, we are overwhelmed by the by the problem. Let's say famine in Ethiopia. And we know that there are hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people who are starving. But then after you've seen it two or three times on TV, you, you lose connection with it because it's just numbers. It's too much. But if a journalist follows the, the one person, one woman who is carrying her baby and is dragging along her other children to try to get to a tent of the Red Cross for help, you follow that person, you know the, no, the name, you know the face, you know the children, you know who will die on the journey, and that's the story. And you can connect to the story. You connect to one person, to the drama of one human being. It's no, not numbers anymore. Yeah, there's no question that we, we respond to one. I mean, it's supposed to be Stalin who has said, if you kill one person, it's murder, but if you kill millions, it's a statistic. Exactly. Yeah, I think the job of the storytelling is to connect the story with the heart of the listener. Right. More than the mind. Which gets me a little bit to your notion about passion. I get the impression that passion is really important to you both as a writer and as a person. Am I right about that? Well, I don't have a choice, do I? Just, that's, the, that's the way it is. <laughs> so well, why? Um, what makes you so passionate? Is it, is it your culture? Is it your own personality? Is it something you strive for? What, 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 what's your relationship to passion? I think, first, I'm very healthy. Then I am usually very curious and enthusiastic about certain things. I'm not passionate about everything. I'm passionate about a few things, that I really care for. And I really care for to the point that I would give my life for that. Um, but there are, those are very few things. And then I'm, I'm passionate because I'm very romantic. So if I fall in love with a guy who doesn't deserve it to begin with, I, I invent uh, the, the perfect lover. And I am passionate for, for a while around 20 years, and then, <laughs> and then I fall out of love. You could, and it takes me like eight no, wait, more wait. years to... For, for 20 wait. years, you can be in love with this imaginary person who's being played by this inadequate lover? <laughs> I've done it twice. <laughs> <laughs> and then it has taken me eight more years to get rid of the person. Oh, my God. So, wait, this, oh this, God. now this calls to mind for me a question <laughs> that I had about passion, that does passion put you in danger of losing your senses, of not being rational? Yes, of course. But isn't that the way we want to live? Or oh, do we want it? to live a rational life, a bland, uh, rational, flat life? Is that what you want? No, I want a healthy mix. Uh-huh. So what's, what's, what, what can we find out from that aha? <laughs> 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 that given a choice, you would, you would choose a passionate life. You know, I am right now recently married. I married two months ago. 
at my age. Go figure. And uh, my husband is a man who has had a safe life. His life has been even. He um, never had to, fa- to look for a job. He married the, the, his sweetheart from high school. Um, he had a wonderful marriage for 42 years. Unfortunately, she died. But he had wonderful children, wonderful grandchildren, no problem until he met me. And then I, I, when, when you ask him, how is it to live with a person like me? He says it's like being a kid and wake up every morning knowing that you are going to the circus. Because he says that I am a perm, I'm a, it's a permanent show, a circus going on. And he says that, um, that, that this ongoing melodrama, things that happen in my life, he had never experienced that before. So he's comfortable with the drama. Now, how do no, you? No, I don't. I don't think he's comfortable. I think he's very uncomfortable. Oh. <laughs> but but he he chose to do it. So. So uh, this is so wonderful. I, I, you're you're open and personal when you speak, and I wonder how. I don't want to intrude on your privacy, but what's an example of something unexpected you give him? that he has to live with and in some way seems to admire. What would be an example of a surprise well, the, you come up for with? For example, I am a, an animal lover. So uh, I have two do- two mats and I sleep with the dogs. So he has to share the bed with two dogs and a, and a lover. <laughs> he wasn't used to that, but he's getting used to it. <laughs> so did he... <laughs> Did he did he ever try to negotiate to get get the dog out of the bed? Did he ever try to? Yeah, do that? that was that was that was like the first day, and that was that. It didn't work. He realized that he wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's what that's the dog's place. You know, you remind me of a tradition that I think I observed when I was in Chile. I was in Chile 16 years ago, and my life was changed, not just changed, it was saved by a doctor who I'm grateful to for the rest of my life. I have 16 years. In Chile? Years. This happened in Chile? Yeah, I, had, I, I was on top of a mountain interviewing astronomers in an observatory, and I, I had an obstruction in my gut that would have killed me within a couple of hours. And a mm-hmm. doctor in the, at the bottom of the mountain was was able to save me. So I'm, I think of Chile with very, very great fondness. I, I think of it as the place where I was reborn. So in a oh, way, wow. I think of that I come from Chile too. But one of the things, I think I saw a traditional way of men greeting women for the first time. It seemed to me that it was expected that they would kiss the woman on both cheeks upon meeting yeah. her. Not that yeah. not not on the second or third <laughs> meeting. Well but on, we kiss everybody. <laughs> so is, do, not, do the women yeah. do that when women meet each other? Do they kiss yeah. each other on yeah. both cheeks? Men so, don't kiss each other. But no, men but kiss women, women and women kiss each other all the time. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, you know what? Nobody when I no, no. When I sign books in Chile, I have to expect three kisses. Two three. kisses when people, yeah, two kisses when people hand me the book. Then I sign it, and before they leave, they leave. They either kiss me once or twice more. 
So by the end of the event, I have a cold and acne, you may imagine. <laughs> you have to, I imagine you have to wash your face for a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes I say, please, I have a cold, so no kissing. Nobody pays any attention. You get the kissing anyhow. Anyhow, I know. Well, that's the thing about passion is you, you lose your sense of germ <laughs> theory. Yo, well, I don't believe in germs. Oh, God. Do you believe in germs? Have you ever seen a germ? You can see a germ in a microscope. Well, I don't have a microscope, so why would I worry? This is now, now, I think you're engaging in magical realism right now. No, 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 no. I'm not, Alan. Roger, my, my husband, washes everything. Therefore, when he gets out of the United States, he gets sick because he catches all the germs. I am Uh, so used to germs and bacteria that I never get sick. That's different. That's different. So you do believe in germs. You just want to get friendly with them. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Just wanted to straighten that out. Tell me about magical realism. What, how, how do you describe it? I love it, by the way. And it's funny because too often a complaint I have against a novel is that it's a wanton rumination in the writer's imagination. And yet the imagination is so active in magical realism, but it seems real to me. It's as real as a dream to me. What's your description? To describe magic realism, I would have to compare it with fantasy. Mm. Um, The invisibility cloak of Harry Potter is fantasy. No one has ever seen an invisibility cloak. It's it's in the imagination of the writer, and if you want to believe it, you do, but, but there's no proof that that ever existed or will exist. But magic realism would be the invisible Indians of the Amazon. And the invisible Indians really exist. And they are invisible because they paint their bodies in the colors of nature. And they walk so swiftly among the trees and the vegetation that they can be two yards away and you don't see them. So magic realism would be the invisible Indians without explaining what it is. Uh. I, would just, I would just say, well, and I, was, and, and I was surrounded by invisible Indians. And don't explain That's magic realism. But if I say I wrap myself in the invisible cloak, then nobody believes that. That that has no no manifestation or explanation in real life. So what is magic realism? It's accepting that there are mysteries that we see in our lives, that we see the manifestation of of those almost miraculous things that we can't explain or control, but they are there. Intuition, imagination, prophetic dreams, coincidences, that, that, that feeling that you've been in that place before, that, that you were there, that you were another person that we have all experienced, that has no explanation yet. It might have it in the future, but right now, we don't know enough about the brain to know from where that comes. So that's part of magic realism. In a way, I was kidding you when I said your germ theory is a kind of magical realism, and it kind of <laughs> does <laughs> it kind of does conform to what you just said about the Indians who have an explanation for why you, there is an explanation for why they're invisible, but if you leave out the explanation, 
it feels more magical, but it's not exactly. less true. And that's how you are about germs. You you said first there are no germs. Did you ever see a germ? But what you were really <laughs> saying was, I there's a whole germ thing going on, but I don't have to go through it in the worst possible way, and don't yeah. have to explain the reality. What what what, we, know, what I call reality? I don't know. Do you have a different sense of reality? Yes, it may probably. I was raised in the house of my grandparents when I was little. And my grandmother, who died, unfortunately, when I was very young, my grandmother spent her life experimenting with the paranormal. For example, trying to train herself for telepathy. She had uh, three friends, and they, the four of them were called the, the White Sisterhood. And they were experimenting all the time with telepathy, trying to communicate, for example, sending apple pie recipes across the city. And the recipes never quite worked, but not because telepathy wasn't working, but because they were terrible cooks. Uh, so, my, my, yeah, my grandmother would uh, have seances to call the spirits uh, on Thursdays around a round table that I have in my house. This is my dining room table. And according to the legend, my grand, the spirits would move the table this is a Spanish table that weighs a ton. You need two men to move it. And according to the legend, as I said, my family legend, my grandmother could move it with one finger. So I grew up with the, with the idea that everything is possible, that mm. you have to be open to the mystery. Of course, there's a lot of craziness around this, but, but just from a literary point of view, it enlarges and enriches everything. Well, it is exciting. It does... It does enlarge my imagination to, to read your magical realism. And I, too, experimented with the paranormal when I was a young man. When I was in my 20s, I was reading all these reports of what sounded like scientific exploration. So I did experiments on my own. and I Like what? Uh, uh, trying to, for instance, when I was with a group of people, I'd see if we could all draw the same picture without knowing what anybody else was drawing. Mm -hmm. And then I... Could you? Well, after two or three tries, everybody was... Most people were drawing a car. But that was <laughs> possibly because for the first two tries, we'd compare notes with what we had drawn, and we started to get agreement on what we were going to draw next at, a, oh, at, at an unconscious <laughs> level. I mean, I always had an explanation for it that I think... I think when it was fun to believe that it was happening and useful to believe it because we were getting closer as a group, that mm -hmm. was one thing. But I still wonder if if telepathy is possible, but I, still, I don't have any evidence that it exists. So I'm more interested in evidence. I think it's possible. And it's maybe we did have it and, and we've lost it. And maybe we, we will be able to get it back. I don't know. That's what my grandmother's explanation would have been. It sounds uh, <laughs> the people in the control room are shrugging in agreement. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It just seems like an apple pie recipe is so complicated. That's because you don't cook. <laughs> well, I never made an apple pie. You're right. We're taking a short break in my conversation with Isabel Allende, and when we come back, Isabel tells me how she came to write her breakthrough novel, The House of the Spirits. 
Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. This is Clear and Vivid. And now back to my conversation with Isabella Allende. We pick up her story when in 1973, her father's cousin, the president of Chile, Salvador Allende, was overthrown in a coup. After the coup took place and, and, and a new government taking over that was repressive, were you, did you have a problem having the same name? Well, there was repression for everybody who sp- spoke up, everybody who opposed the government, everybody who was a leftist, for journalists, for intellectuals, for workers, for uh, half the population was terribly repressed. Um, Most of Allende's family left the country immediately. 24 hours after the coup, the Mexican government sent a plane to um, bring to Mexico the family and the the closest collaborators of of Allende. And... uh, I was called to see if I wanted to leave, but I thought that it was crazy to leave because we had no no experience, no tradition of military coups in Chile. We didn't know what it was, and all information was censored. That We didn't know what was going on. So I thought, oh, no, I'll, I'll stay and, and just wait, wait this out, and, and things will come back to normal soon. No one expected it except the military to, for the dictatorship to last 17 years. So I stayed in Chile. Um, my husband was not at all involved in politics, but he was horrified at what had happened, I mean, at the coup and at the repression. And I got involved in trying to help people, but I know, because we didn't know the consequences at the beginning. And then as I got more and more in trouble, of course, I, I lost my job, but many people did. So it's, I don't think it was because I was called Allende. Maybe I was watched more closely, but... But I was in the same situation that many other journalists were, most of them. And uh, then uh, when I felt that, the, that, that I was in a blacklist, that I was being threatened, that I was being watched, and then, I, and then I realized the risk I was in, I had to leave. So I left first with the idea that I, w- I would come back soon to my country. And then when it was really obvious that I couldn't go back. Then my husband reunited with me and my children in Venezuela. He brought the children. Uh, We got to Venezuela with no money, with no connections. Um, In Latin America, connections are everything. And um, and my, my husband got a job, but not in Caracas. So he was away. Most of the time we would see each other every two months. And I stayed in Caracas with the kids and did all sorts of odd jobs to make a living, but couldn't work as a journalist, the only thing that I knew how to do. And I think that by 1981, I was quite desperate. I I had the feeling that my life wasn't going anywhere. My marriage was collapsing. Um, My children were very unhappy. They wanted to go back to Chile. 
So nothing was working. Did you then start to write the House of the Spirits? I think that the House of the Spirits was like an exercise in nostalgia, trying to recreate the world I had lost, to reunite those who were displaced, my family and friends, um, in a way to save my own memory, because after some time I was I was beginning to forget, to forget people and places and and stories, the, the wonderful stories that my grandfather would tell me. I heard you say once that you wanted to give women in Latin American literature their own voice, almost maybe perhaps for the first time. In in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we had what was called the boom of Latin American literature. The world was astonished at the fact that there were these incredibly fantastic writers coming from a place where until then it had, they had been unknown. And this movement of the boom was created or happened. They were all male, all male writers. There was not one female voice in the in in the boom then when i wrote the house of the spirits in 1982 it was said for a while that i was the only feminine voice in the boom and then they said no no, no she doesn't belong to the boom she's post boom being post whatever is not nice but that's what i was that was my my place but what happened was that the 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 success the sudden success of the house of the spirits created an awareness in publishers. They were a lot of Latin American female voices that had been ignored or silenced. I mean, women have been writing in, in, in Latin America since Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz in the 16th century. So it's not that, that we were not writing. It was more than because of the culture and, and the way things are. We were silenced, ignored. Even if they were writing, there was no respect for women. And in a way, I have experienced it myself. I have written 24 books. Almost all of them have been bestsellers. I'm sorry, this sounds very vain. I shouldn't be saying it myself. You should be saying it. No, it's just a fact. No, you should be saying it, but you're not. So let, <laughs> I'll let be me saying say it, it. When, when we're done with our conversation. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. So, so what I, and, and I don't have the, kind, the stature that a 19-year-old kid in Chile who's writing a memoir may have if he's a boy. So it, it takes for women three times more effort and time to get half the recognition that any man gets. And that's in every field. Did you start the first feminist magazine in Latin America, or at least in Chile? It was, it was the, not exactly like Miss Magazine, but it was a feminist, feminine magazine that um, was the first time we had something like that in Chile in the late, eight, in the late 60s. Um, and it was, for me, the most splendid time of my life. I was young. I was uh, discovering uh, a language to express all the anger that I had, the feminist anger that I couldn't name because I didn't know anything about feminism. I just had the feelings. And then to discover that there was a movement out there 
that there was an articulate language to express it, that there were very um, very determined goals for this movement. That was great. It was a great time in my life. And yet, I've read that in the magazine you wrote pieces that were not overtly angry, but were funny, that you you were using humor as your as your tool is it, do I have that wrong no you that, that that that's correct i discovered very very early on that you can say almost anything with humor and kindness mm-hmm. that people receive it much better than an angry message and i do understand anger you really need anger as a tool many times in life but in in this particular case when you had to to fight against traditional male chauvinism, the macho, the Chilean macho. You can't imagine what the Chilean macho is. You had to fight against that. Um, it was much better to do it with humor. Did, did I see you say in an interview once that your daughter said that he, she felt feminism was outdated? Mm-hmm. What did she mean by that? She was 16 or 17, 16 years old. And um, she felt that that Everything was already done. And the fact that I kept uh, working as a feminist, being a feminist, preaching feminism was dated. And it showed my age and it, it was not in anymore and wasn't necessary anymore. And then a couple of years later, when she entered the workforce and she went to the university and all that, she, she changed, of course, and, and realized that she had been very sheltered in a feminist household. And then when she got out in the world, she realized that everything needed to be done. That we, have, we had achieved a lot, my generation did, but there was much more to be done. Look, this is my job, and, and I work with this. And, and this, the situation of women in the world is appalling, appalling. We are here in, in, in the United States, in the Western world, appalled by the Me Too movement, by the fact that harassment, uh, sexual harassment, is, is taken for granted by most men. They think they have the right to do. But in the world, rape is a, is a weapon of war to destroy women and destroy communities. It's so effective that now they're raping men. Um, mm. the, the, the girls that are married at eight to men who are in their 40s, and by age 12 they are giving birth. This is happening today. They are selling people. They are selling women and girls like slaves. So that we have so much to do. And this is when, when we were talking about passion. I am passionate about this. What do you do as an activist to, to work against this? What, what efforts do you make? I have a foundation. Tell me about that. A, a large part of my income goes to the foundation. Hmm. And uh, my daughter-in-law with another friend called Sarah, uh, they run the foundation. And our mission is empowerment of women and girls. And we work in, we were working in many areas, more than 100 programs. But after the election, uh, we have to narrow our scope and focus on certain things that have become very relevant at this point in, in our country, especially. Um, one is reproductive rights, health. Uh, another one is um, fighting against uh, exploitation and abuse of women and, of course, uh, empowering women so that they can support themselves and their children because if they are economically dependent, 
then there's no feminist at all. I mean, you you can't, you don't have choices. Um, so this is the work we do. And if you are in any way interested, just Google my name and the first thing that comes up is the foundation and you will see how many programs we support. Oh, that's great. Good. That's that's what and is it is it mainly in this country or does it extend around the world? Um we would like to reduce it to a few places, but unfortunately once you start with a program, you cannot let it go. Because it's not a matter of just making a check. You follow through to the for sometimes for many, many years. So we have programs in Chile, in, in Mexico, in um, in India, in Nepal, in the United States, especially in the border now. So we unfortunately are extended too widely. allowed to be on the stage, so to speak. Is their contribution, can you say their contribution is materially different from that of men? Is their point of view, to the way they see the world different or, or, or not? How, how do you see it? It's very different. I think that uh, we are different biologically and culturally. Um, men see the world in terms of hierarchy, of win and lose. Women see the world as a circle, in, in, in a more communal way. We, when, in, in, in times of danger, men fight or escape. Testosterone, adrenaline. In times of danger, women gather the children in the middle and they make a circle and they try to negotiate. They try to compromise. They try to find solutions that are not fighting because they would lose the fight if it's a physical fight. So they protect each other. So there are ways of thinking that are different. When you have had a, a baby growing inside you, you, of course, see the world and life in a different way than a man who will never experience that. We care for the children and we care for... We, we cultivate the land. You know, two-thirds of the... Agricultural work in the world is done by women. And and so we we not only bring life through our wombs, we bring life in everything we cultivate, everything we do. So we respect life much more than men will ever do. So now I'm going to throw you off balance, but no, I don't mean to. How does that fit in with flirting? Because I see you, you kind of, you've said you kind of like to flirt. Of course, I like men, but but I don't want men to manage the world. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I like them. Of course, I like them, and I enjoy them, and, and there's a lot of good things about men. I, I'm trying to understand flirting because, as far as I know, I don't flirt. You are, you're a flirt, too, so you you don't need an explanation. I do because I don't think I flirt. Maybe you I don't? do unconsciously, yeah. Um, have I been <laughs> flirting on this phone call? Of course you have. Oh, my God, I didn't even know it. What? <laughs> I was at dinner last night knowing I was going to speak with you today. And I went around the table and I asked everybody, especially the women, 
do you flirt? What is flirting? How do, how do you how do you flirt? So I'm, let me ask you, how, how do you flirt when you flirt? You're happily okay. married, but you flirt, right? Of course I flirt. At my age, it sounds a little ridiculous, but I still do. Let me give you an example. Um, I separated from my husband, my second husband, after 28 years together. 20 years of love and 8 years to get rid of him, as I said before. <laughs> so that, that adds up to 28. And then I thought, okay, at my age, I'm going to be alone. So I'm, I bought a very small house with one bedroom, and I said, I'm going to live here with my dog. And then a guy heard me on NPR and started to write to me every morning and every evening for five months. Until one, finally we... One guy got infatuated with you from NPR and wrote you for five months? Yeah. And then finally we met. And then when we met, wh- what is my way of flirting? He invited me out for dinner. And after the first, the, 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 the appetizer, we were in the main course, I said, what are your intentions? Because I'm 72 years old, I don't have any time to waste. So that was flirting. And the poor guy choked in the ravioli, but he didn't escape. <laughs> and eventually he married me. So it works. Oh, no. <laughs> wow. So that, now that's funny because when you said you didn't have any time to waste when you were 73, that didn't sound Two, like 72. flirting to me. That sounded like an <laughs> injection of reality into the dinner. <laughs> How much longer did it take after that, after that statement, that reality check? Oh, that was check? quick. Th- that, that was very quick. And, now you got um, married soon after? How long after? Well, he, he moved to my house very shortly after that. And we tried to, to live in this little house. And when it re- we realized that it was working, we got married. We married two months ago. Oh, this is wonderful. And uh, you know what? It's very nice because I know that I will sort of love him for 20 years and then eight more. By then I'll be dead. So there's, uh, this will be probably my last marriage. How do you keep it going? What there are disagreements in every marriage. What do you What do you do about that when it happens? Do you Do you have a, a passionate all out fight? Do you Do you remember you only have twenty years <laughs> yeah. of this? Or, I, well, what do you in do? this case, in this case, it's different. When I was younger. Um, I'm very polite, actually, so I don't fight uh, screaming or slamming doors, none of that. But I'm very strong about what I want, and I never compromise for what I want. But in this case, with, with Roger, I realize that we don't have much time. How many more years of health and, and strength? And How many more do we have? Five, ten? We don't have one day to lose. So uh, you have to get rid of all the pettiness, the jealousy, the little fights, the stuff that that sort of blurs the the real meaning of why you are together. So I just overlook a lot of stuff that before I would have not overlooked. I wish I had known this before in my life. Maybe I wouldn't have two divorces behind me. How, How young were you when you realized you knew what you wanted? Did it go back to your girlhood? Yes, yes. Very young. Very young I knew I didn't want to to live like my mother. I adored my mother, but I didn't want to be her or live like her. I wanted to be like my grandfather. 
I wanted to be independent, to have my own money, to have my car, to not give explanations to anybody, make decisions. I must have been six or seven when I was already thinking that way. Well, my mother thought that there was something wrong with me, so I was taken to the to a doctor many times to see if there was something wrong, physically wrong. You were suffering then, from independence. Suffering from, yeah, independence and therefore anger. I was yeah. sullen and angry because, uh, because, because I couldn't get what I wanted. And then I saw that my brothers could get it in puberty. You, it was very clear that my brothers had a kind of independence and a kind of, of life that I couldn't have. I was, I think, the smartest among the three kids. I was a very good student and I read all the time. But nobody thought that for me to go to college was was something desirable. Uh, I was going to get married and maybe work as a secretary for some time and have kids. That was my my future. And my brothers were forced to go to college and to, to get a profession, not me. In a way, I lucked out because I ended up writing. But I don't have higher education of any kind. That's so, that's so interesting. And, you be, and here you fill libraries with your books now and fill universities with classes about your books, which you did through sheer determination and this sense of independence that you, you took on as, a, as your right. Very interesting. Very interesting how you got that sense at the age of six or seven. And now you've just published a new book. What would you say, if anything, has grown or changed in your writing or evolved to something that you didn't expect? Anything in yes. this latest book? Uh, when I wrote The House of the Spirits, I didn't know that I was writing a novel. I had no idea what I was writing. It started as a letter from my grandfather. Um, I had no idea what the industry of, of, of books is all about. I never read a book review in my life, as most people never have. Um, I didn't know that books were taught in universities, nothing. So I was very innocent. And in a way, I stepped into this mind field without knowing the, the, the danger or the expectations or anything. And that freedom, I have never had it again, because with the success of the House of the Spirits, I lost my innocence. Mm. And many years later, my latest book, uh, the, the experience of writing it, the writing, the process is the same, but the anxiety is not the same, because now I know what I'm doing. I have always the same publishers. I know that it will be published. I know that I know how to write a story. I may have chosen the wrong story, maybe, but if I am given enough time, and I do give myself the time, I know how to write. I didn't know that before. It has taken me many years to get that experience, the skill, and the, and the, the feeling of confidence that I didn't have before. That's interesting that you say that, because that's the last question of seven questions that we ask at the end of every conversation. Do you mind if I ask you the questions? They're, very, they're, not, they're not embarrassing questions. Oh, but, I don't mind embarrassing. They're about communicating and relating. So let me, get, let me ask you and work my way down to the last one. The first question is, what's the hardest thing you've ever tried to explain to someone? 
feminism. Really? See, this is so interesting. That These are supposed to be short answers, but I want to have another conversation with you about why that was hard. But let's go to the next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I don't know. I, I suppose I simply um, try to give them or that person the facts that I know to be right, but that doesn't mean I will convince the person. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? What you your first question? <laughs> <laughs> good. I'm glad I was here at a historic moment. That's good. <laughs> How do you stop a compulsive talker? I walk away. Just like that. Yeah, of course. Oh, great. We're very frank. How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone you don't know at a dinner party? Tell me your story. Tell me your story. And they tell you? Of course. Everybody wants to tell their story. And that, is my, that was my way of flirting. Oh. I mean, ask any man, tell me your story, and he will think that you are really interested. And you can pretend to be listening. <laughs> But only for 20 years. <laughs> okay, what, now, th th this is our next to last question. Tell me again what gives you confidence. Experience. Good, good. Now, the last question. What book changed your life? The House of the Spirits. It changed my life completely. I, I was one person with one life before, and when I wrote that book and it was published, it changed my life forever. It gave me a voice. Well, I'm so glad you used that voice today, and it's a pleasure to meet this other person. I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about who the first one was, but I'm so glad to meet this one. Thank you so much for being Thank with you, me. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. I really had fun with you. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to Discovery for being our presenting sponsor this season. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. For more information about the Alda Center, please visit aldacenter.org. Isabel is a font of creativity. She's written 23 books, sold 74 million copies, and had her work turned into two major motion pictures. She's been a lifelong activist for women's reproductive rights, economic independence, and freedom from violence against women around the world. Her foundation works tirelessly to invest in the power of women and girls in order to secure a more equal future for women. I encourage you to visit her foundation at isabelallende.org and to learn more about all her many accomplishments and her incredible body of work. Please visit isabelallende.com. This episode was produced by Graham Shedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the hosts of the popular podcast Curiosity Daily. Cody Goff and Ashley Hamer bring a very lively and personal approach to science storytelling. All right, Ashley, how much attention do you pay to the temperature when you go to sleep? Not a lot. I kind of keep my apartment the same temperature all the time, I think. Really? You don't make it colder when you sleep? No, I don't. I totally do, so that I can cover myself with blankets. That is a very cozy feeling, for sure. It is. And research shows that sleeping in a cold room could help boost your metabolism and make you burn more calories, even during the day. Ooh. Yeah. And it's because of fat. So, quick refresher on fat for all you non-fat enthusiasts out there. (laughs) When you were a baby, you had two types of fat. There's white fat, and that stores calories, and that's pretty much all it does, actually. And then there's brown fat, and that's what you would call metabolically active. That burns calories to generate heat. A dip into the engaging world of Curiosity Daily, next time on Clear and Vivid. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.